everyone, and welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. I'm Jackie Ford. I'm a partner in the Voris Employment Law Practice and the host of our podcast. Today, we'll be talking about uh, something that's a little bit different for HR professionals. You know, you guys in HR love to talk about and think about transparency and openness, but sometimes we also need to talk about secrets. And today, we'll be talking about special kinds of secrets and how to keep your secret secret. Uh, what are some of the most common and most serious issues for employers to be aware of right now in terms of protecting your company's trade secrets? Now, those trade secrets and other intellectual property are just that. They're property. They're very valuable property. And just as you protect your physical property with locks and keys and security guards, you need to protect your intellectual property as well. And the HR and legal departments are so critical to keeping that property safe. How do you keep your secret sauce from being secretly passed to your biggest competitor? And what should you do if you think that that's happened? Well, with me today to talk about all of that is my friend and partner, Carrie Jordan. Carrie is a partner in the Voris Intellectual Property Practice. She advises large-scale clients on patent prosecution and global intellectual property portfolio management, agreements, licenses, transactions involving IP, and risk consulting. Carrie has had significant experience in crafting and conducting IP due diligence for everything from investments and acquisitions to divestitures. And although she is very experienced across basically every technology area, um, her personal sweet spots are in the chemicals and material sciences arena. So Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jackie. Happy to be here. So Carrie, today, first of all, I want to, I just, you know, we want to be talking about the top issues in your world, intellectual property and trade secrets. So maybe we should just start off with a little bit of level setting. So tell us what exactly is a trade secret? Sure. Trade secrets can be traced, believe it or not, to Roman law, where a competitor's corruption of a slave to divulge his master's commercial affairs was punished as a matter of law. Modern law evolved in England in the Industrial Revolution, and the first case in the U.S. started in 1837. So that's a brief history on trade secrets. What's interesting in recent times is Congress actually finally passed a federal uh, trade secret law called Defend Trade Secrets Act in 2016, and in that it defined trade secrets on a federal basis, and that definition is that it's all forms of financial, business, scientific, technology, and economic and engineering information that the owner has taken reasonable measures to keep such info secret. And the info derives an independent economic value, either actually or potentially, from not being generally known to or readily ascertainable through proper means by another person who can obtain economic value from the disclosure or use of the info if they had it. So that's the formal definition on the federal level. Most states have some version of that definition um, under their own versions of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. But now that there's a federal law, we often look to federal law and its definition to define trade secrets. What's important in that definition is two things, is it can be lots of different kinds of information, and it has to have been protected uh, by reasonable measures. So it doesn't have to be uh, 
Coca-Cola formula, which is one of the most famous trade secrets out there. It doesn't have to be the big whiz-bang of the business. It can be R&D data. It can be business and marketing strategies. It can be pricing strategies, sales strategies, management techniques, um, customer lists, distribution sources, vendor and supply lists, and business know-how. And even in some states, it can be negative know-how, like how not to do something. So trade secrets and what they are are very, very broad. And the key to them being found to be trade secrets are the measures that are used to keep them secret. So your point of let's talk about keeping things secret, that's, that's the essence of trade secrets. Okay, so the information has value and you have taken reasonable steps to keep that secret secret and then with a lot of variations at, at state and federal law. So this could be a pretty broad range of information and, and data, right? Correct. Absolutely. It could be that, let's say, your supplier does his best pricing deals on Tuesdays after 3 o'clock because that's the day that he gets pressured to make sales and therefore needs to close them up by the end of the day. I mean, just something that simple that you know Joe Blow makes better deals on Tuesdays could be a trade secret. Wow. Well, that really that's a great example because it really makes us think very broadly about the kinds of information we and our employees who have access to that may need to protect. So. Once we know we have these trade secrets, which every company has, so what, what are the biggest threats to them? Do they tend to come more from inside the company or from strangers outside the company? Generally speaking, they do come from inside and what I term company insiders, which can be employees, vendors, suppliers, joint venture partners, um, any other company that you're giving the access, access to the information is generally your biggest threat. The outsider threat, although there, is less apt to happen because you don't hear the cases where somebody sent a spy plane over a plant and figured out what was going inside the, on inside the reactors, for instance. It's just a harder thing to do. Most stolen trade secrets come from an insider. So, for example, in current times, you'll have an employee who is a foreign national who then goes back to his or her home country and takes those secrets. So it's an insider, I think, generally presents our biggest threats at the moment. Yeah, and the insider is going to have so much more access to such a broad range of information, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Now, I think you were telling me earlier, too, you know, we talked a moment ago about their state and federal law that comes into play here, but there are also international implications, and we're now seeing more and more of these trade secret issues playing out uh, internationally, I think particularly in China. But can you could you speak to that for a minute, what's going on there? Oh, absolutely. The, as in any other jurisdiction, the U.S. law only goes to the U.S. territorial scope. Um, and so in order to protect trade secrets in other jurisdictions, we will really have to look at those specific jurisdictions and what the remedies and enforcement mechanisms are there. And China, you mentioned, that is an utmost concern for companies now. And China is a relative newcomer to having intellectual property enforcement mechanisms within it you know, in the last 20, 30 years. I've been only practicing 22 years. I choose to think that that's <laughs> not very long. But so relative newcomer to this. Um, they passed, China passed in 1994 the unfair competition law as a primary be means to protect trade secrets. And it defined it as technical information and operational information that's not known to the public that does give economic benefit to the owner and has practical applicability um, and that the owner has taken measures to keep secret. So, again, not all that different from the U.S. Uh, 
China also instituted the TRIPS protocol, which is kind of the bare minimum, saying that there would be some sort of remedy. So China does have some statutory means by which trade secrets can be protected. The implementation of those in the court system, however, is much more difficult than it would be in the U.S., for instance, especially when you're dealing with a, a state-owned entity as, as potentially the person who has received the trade secrets or is somehow complicit in the um, theft. So China does present a very overwhelming problem at the moment. Wow. So we've got state and federal and international implications applying to all of this information. So it just emphasizes all the more the importance of protecting the information in the first place, right, and, and hoping that it doesn't uh, leave, your, uh, leave your control and, and become something that is no longer secret. What are some of the top steps that you think um, HR departments and their counsel could be taking right now to try to protect themselves from those kinds of breaches of their um, intellectual property. Well, I think you have to look at who the potential insider is as a first step as, as an HR professional. If you're going to be giving any confidential information to an interviewee, for instance, then they definitely need to have some sort of confidentiality agreement signed. And if that employee is a um, non-U.S. national, consider whether the choice of law um, provisions in that agreement should be something other than the U.S., for example, an international arbit arbitration authority, um, something like that where you're more apt to get re some relief against a foreign national if they left the U.S. as opposed to, let's say, Texas law, um, something like that. For employees, I think you've got to consider um, what the employment agreement says as to what their obligations are and making sure that uh, they recognize that the trade secrets are valuable to the company and that they recognize their obligation to keep them secret. And to the extent that there are covenants not to compete in those uh, agreements, they need to be limited in duration and scope so that hopefully they are enforceable. And again, if you're dealing with a potential foreign national, you need to think about an international arbitration provision as opposed to uh, relying on a U.S choice of law and choice of forum clause because, uh, again, having that U.S. law apply over in China as to what's going on in China is going to be extremely difficult. There was a case, actually, Jackie, that you might find interesting. It was in the early 2000s, but it was called the Google Challenge, and Microsoft was in China and setting up an operation there, and one of their uh, lead executives was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Li, and Dr. Li uh, went to a meeting called the Google Challenge because Google was moving into China at the time and Microsoft had had this very long you know, retreat of a meeting in order to figure out how to deal with this Google Challenge. So Dr. Lee was there. Following that meeting, he decided to take a year sabbatical. And after that year sabbatical, he came back and told Microsoft that he was leaving for Google. He had an employment contract with Microsoft that provided a covenant not to compete. It provided um, a confidentiality obligation with respect to trade secrets and confidential information, and it provided a forum clause in the state of Washington, and it provided a choice of law clause of state of Washington. Long story short, uh, the Washington court 
eventually allowed him to go to work for Google in China and stated that the relationships that he had were personal to him and therefore not Microsoft's and that he maybe couldn't use the trade secrets, but all of his relationships in China were his own. So essentially he was able to go to Google and there was no way they were going to monitor exactly what he was doing at Google in China from Washington. There's just no way. So my point is if you're dealing with foreign nationals, make sure that the clauses that you have regarding a dispute will actually be helpful to you, and arbitration provisions are often the way to go. Um, well, and, and also, Carrie, not to interrupt, but I just think you've hit on so many key points that are, are easily lost in the shuffle. You know, we get into these habits of, I have certain agreements, and they're form agreements, and I use them in every situation, and those situations are employment situations. But what about someone who is not yet my employee or is a contractor who's never going to be an employee? Have I really nailed down all of those entry and exit points for my uh, my trade secrets and other intellectual property? I think that's such an important point. It really is. And when you're dealing with those types of parties, you have to have a similar considerations. You've got to have an obligation of confidentiality and uh, non-disclosure. You might want to think about if there's any benefits derived from something that they've used outside that relationship, that those benefits, for example, if let's say they have a trade secret of yours and they've stolen it and then they've improved it. Let's say it is a, a part of a device or something, and they improve it. Well, that improvement should be yours. You know, it, it would be the language you're looking for with vendors and contractors to make sure that they're not getting an added benefit from what you've given them under the agreements. And again, you want to think about form and uh, choice of law selection in those agreements as well. So you want to set up those agreements correctly to make sure that you have anticipated and properly protect yourself um, from all those different um, permutations. But then what happens when it actually happens? So you did everything right, you had your agreements in place, but somehow this um, secret information of yours has gone elsewhere. What kind of steps can you take and should you take in regard to both the bad guy insider who made off with your stuff and the competitor who may be using that information now? Right. And so let's assume that we're in the U.S. and this is all related to U.S. companies. So if that's the case, then generally speaking, you want to send a letter to the employee and the new employer because most likely this has happened in a scenario where the employee has left to go to one of your competitors. And so you want to put the employee on notice of his or her obligations regarding what they've signed as to the confidential information and, and the obligations they owe their former employer. And you want to give a heads up to the company that's hired them that, hello, you know, you have a person there that we believe has stolen information from us. And most companies don't want to hire a lawsuit. They recognize right. that this is important. And so they're, they're going to take that very seriously and hopefully get with the employee and make sure that, let's say, that employee had downloaded some information on a memory stick and taken it, that they then don't take that information and reload it onto the new company's computer or something like that. So that one of the best things you can do is, is put, the other, put the employee and that other employer on notice. And then should you have to go to court, you can get injunctive relief as well as um, damages. Um, but generally speaking, the letter campaign is the best way to go because that usually stops it. 
Right, because as you said, I love the way you phrase this, companies don't want to hire a lawsuit. Uh, and if they're alerted to the fact that they may have made uh, that mistake, you're giving them the opportunity to act in their own best interest. Exactly, um, which is why they shouldn't. Down. Exactly, which is why they shouldn't engage in predatory hiring practices in the first place, right? Exactly. <laughs> you gotta, exactly. You, you and need why, to be very aware of that from the very beginning. Well, and, and in all fairness, you know, when we're on that side, right, when we have we, I mean, you know, us and our, our clients who are, are listening here today, when we're hiring, we should be taking those steps to say, do you have any non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, non-competes that would in any way relate to the work you're doing for us? And by the way, err on the side of over-inclusion, you know, show us anything you have that might potentially apply so that we don't inadvertently uh, step into those crosshairs when we're doing our own hiring. Absolutely, and I think it's also useful and self-serving to have a policy of respecting that explicitly states that we respect other people's or third parties' IP rights. And then everything you're doing with respect to that employee is in furtherance of the policy of we respect others' IP rights. And that gives you some good verbiage um, of company policy in order to rely on to do that. Well, so I think, Carrie, you've given us so many really great practical tips already today about that policy idea, about making a, an affirmative statement about respect for IP rights, um, for some of these agreements that we need to make sure we have explicitly in place, whether it's for employees, for interviewees, for contractors, or whomever else is or is likely to have access to our uh, material and our confidential material. There has been a lot of shifting law uh, at both, particularly at the state level, about what is and is not enforceable in terms of non-competes, um, non-solicits, NDAs, and that sort of thing over the last few years. And then you've also been telling us about the importance of keeping the international aspects of that um, to mind, especially in regard to China. So. This has already given us, I think, a great overview. We hopefully will have a time for a deeper dive later on. But if nothing else today, I think we've given people a really great um, general view of the types of issue spotting they should be doing. Uh, and if at any point you guys think that you have trade secret issues, again, at any stage of the business, pre-hire, during employment, or post-hire, um, you know, we would love to help you with those. And you want to make sure that you're really getting um, current and full advice on those because the protection of your trade secrets is just so critically important. Um, so again, Carrie, thank you so much for helping us today. Sure, and, happy uh, to be here. And uh, hope you guys have found this useful. And now. Let's get back to work.